Welcome to the Insightful Investor Podcast, a weekly series that seeks to share industry, investment, and market insights. We define insights as concepts that are counterintuitive, widely misunderstood, or underappreciated. In other words, unique ideas that you probably won't hear elsewhere. I'm Alex Shahidi, the host of the podcast and co-CIO of Evoke Advisors, one of the nation's leading investment advisory firms. Learn more about our show at insightfulinvestor.org. Today, we have a very special guest. Uh, Brian Higgins is here. Brian, thank you for joining us. Alex, thanks for having me today. Of course. Um, Brian is the co-founder, managing partner, and co-portfolio manager of King Street. Uh, King Street, a firm you launched in uh, 1995, almost 30 years ago is a $25 billion global alternative asset manager. Uh, Brian, you, you and I have known each other for for many, many years, and I've always enjoyed our conversations. And uh, I'm excited that listeners get to sit in on this one. So I'm looking forward to this. Well, it's always been great. Uh, long, as I always say, the uh, old friends are the best friends. And Alex, you've always been putting me to the test. So I, I enjoy our, our conversations always. That's great. Uh, so today, I'd like to cover four broad topics. Uh, we'll we'll kick it off with your background, and we'll try to focus on things that somebody can't just read in your bio. Um, we'll spend some time talking about risk, a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart. Uh, we'll, we'll get into the firm you've built uh, very, very successfully, uh, and then we'll end with your market outlook and uh, areas that you're finding opportunities. Does that sound pretty good? Sounds great. Look forward to it. Okay, so let's uh, let's kick it off. Um, would you just tell us who Brian Higgins is? Your, your background, um, your experiences, your learnings that shaped your investment philosophy, your kind of core principles, your core investment principles, maybe even your life principles. Uh, why don't we kick it off there? Sure. So, growing up in the East Coast and in, in New Jersey, and being close to New York City, and knowing people that were part of Wall Street always had an attraction because I, I saw people who were like myself. They were uh, interesting, aggressive, thoughtful, uh, and and really just wanted to learn and understand things and, and felt that they had this ability to uh, put things in, in the world in perspective. And as, as a constant learner, that was a very attractive proposition to me. And so growing up in a competitive family with siblings and focusing on sports and academics growing up, there was always uh, lots of life lessons to be had. And it was something that, you know, I'm a product of the 70s and 80s because born in 65, uh, there was a lot of things happening, geopolitical as we have today. Uh, however, we had oil crises, we had Volcker, we had Reaganomics, we had a number of things that, that went on in the government that, that severely impacted the U.S. economy uh, and things around the world. And so these seismic changes in movements in markets and economies tended to, uh, you know, invite uh, a lot of curiosity and how it impacted uh, me on a, on a daily basis and our family. And that curiosity and the ability to make sense of things, I think, uh, was uh, a big driver in growing up going and pursuing a career on Wall Street where I thought all the answers would be. 
and and frankly, uh, working in, in hard in something and being rewarded. And I, I felt that uh, some of the big corporations I saw through family, neighbors, et cetera, there was a lot of politics. And, and Wall Street always seemed to be a place that uh, if you did well, you performed, you got compensated, uh, more of a eat what you kill uh, type mentality. Okay. And then within that that world, the investment world, was there something specific about kind of the credit side that, that drew you to that segment? Well, when I, I started in 87 out of university, I started at First Boston, which then became Credit Suisse, then became UBS at the moment. Uh, and so it was a heady day at the time, 87, which followed by the crash in in, uh, in October. But in 87, there was lots of mergers going on. There was a lot of activity. And I started in the merchant banking department, which a lot of these mergers were debt-fueled, and they were raising a lot of this new product called high-yield securities or junk bonds. And the era of Michael Milken and Drexel Burnham and First Boston was uh, also a big user and issuer of these junk bonds. Uh, and like anything, when there's excesses in a market, there uh, create opportunities. And so excesses follow a deficit of capital and things dislocate quite dramatically as the, as they did post the crash and financing got quite expensive. You saw Drexel go out of business. And so starting out uh, as I did on the advisory side and, and merchant banking where we were doing proprietary deals for the firm and then later saw some of those deals uh, crater go into Chapter 11, which uh, caused financial stress for First Boston and then had to be bailed out by Credit Suisse. You know, you see the the downside. And so uh, credit, a uh, lot of volatility within credit, a lot of volatility, uh, more equity-like. However, if you structure it appropriately, you could protect yourself. And I think uh, as time went on, I, I would learned, uh, you know, firsthand and, and certainly as we later traded distressed securities proprietarily uh, on the high-yield desk, we were seeing as this market dislocated, many of the opportunities that were created out of this this severe dislocation. And we were able to participate with equity-like returns in these fixed income securities. And I said, hey, wait, this is, this is a pretty attractive area where if you do your work, you understand the financials. And I think there's a complacency that at times comes into the fixed income markets. And we were able to take advantage of that as uh, things weren't adequately priced in, in terms of risk-reward uh, perspective. And then in, in your kind of early years, you know, what, what I've learned through experience in meeting uh, successful investors is their core investment principles were oftentimes shaped by their early experiences. You're kind of green and you're learning uh, a lot in the beginning. Um, were there certain experiences for you that shaped kind of the investor you are today? Yeah, as I said, you know, starting in July of 87 and a couple months later, having Black Monday and the, the stock, you know, crashing and, and stocks tra- crashing and, and people getting laid off and uh, the world's going to end uh, and then see a rebound uh, quite quickly. And then seeing the firm that I worked in, uh, the heyday firm that all of a sudden was its existence was being called into question. Uh, then seeing Drexel one day issuing commercial paper, the next day uh, going bankrupt. You know, these stark uh, juxtapositions of everything's great, nothing to see here, and then uh, everything ends. 
I think that that shaped in terms of you know hey there there can't be complacency hey what are how are we really uh, pricing risk appropriately I joke uh, people say what are the things about King Street down you know and I say well paranoia and insecurity and I think it's important to uh, look at you know hey what am I missing and that constant learning desire is is important in risk management and and looking at you know what what is the proper appropriate assessment uh, for uh, the companies that you're underwriting because uh, too many times you know there's there's a, a, a tendency to uh, go with status quo that that the price uh, is justified and you know really uh, many times it's you know, there's there's an opportunity there, like anything. I mean, you know, our our job is to uh, find out where people are wrong. It's pretty remarkable where things could look perfectly fine one day, and then literally a day or two later, you're out of business. And we've seen it, you know, recently with SVB and others. But it's it's pretty remarkable that that can actually happen, um, and and uh, blindside those who know these, you know, companies and industries extremely well. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and the SVB and and other in terms of it was in health and maturity. It was okay. People looked at the way they funded their balance sheet. We saw with uh, Lehman and Bear Stearns, um, you know, they didn't have adequate uh, protection uh, in terms of financing. And so, you know, I think it's uh, when uh, the confidence erodes and you are incredibly levered. Let's let's be clear here. Now, you know, many of these banks are, are much better. They're not as levered as they as they were. And in the case of the SCB and Signature, et cetera, those banks were, you know, levered to these uh, uh, these deposits and um, these short duration deposits that, you know, could be pulled at a moment's notice. And once the confidence game, uh, you know, ended, then uh, their mere their their existence was called into question. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating where you can hit a tipping point and it's it's game over, just just like that. Yeah, so as as we look at opportunities and you know the biggest thing about King Street is is seeing this volatility, I say, well, let's just not wait for these opportunities to create themselves. Perhaps there's a cheap optionality created by participating on the short side. So as we look at both short and long and I jokingly refer to ourselves as a short long investor, and, and people say, don't you mean long, short? And I said, no, because the orientation for us, many of our biggest longs that we've been successful in over our near 30-year history started out as short positions. And I think that ability, again, to be agnostic in, in terms and just be arbiters of value and, and, and not so wedded to, uh, you know, one way to make money. Uh, I think that's that's important is to develop this convexity and and that downside protection and that all goes into you know how do we structure our portfolio to you know participate and really truly be as you said alternative manager but we're an absolute return manager you know it's not we can't say our investors well relatively speaking we did you know okay and people say I don't care you're an absolute return manager make money no matter what and and that's that's a great discipline uh, that is you know important that we always keep in mind. Yeah, and it sounds like from your early experiences that your your orientation is absolutely return minded. It's a different mindset. There's a lot of relative return managers where they're just trying to beat their index. The index is down 20, they're down 16, and they feel like they've outperformed. And and I, I guess your early days and and the experience of of the downside uh, drew you into a more absolute return oriented you know strategy. I guess that does that does that make sense? 
Yeah, and as we look at you know markets ac- across the world, and our job, and we you know we have a global presence, is to find the best risk-adjusted return around the world. You know whether it's something in Asia, Europe, U.S., and where we are in the capital structure, where we are, because it, you know debt securities that trade at a discount are really like equity, and so we have to be mindful about what the risks were taken. There's there's no uh, ability to uh, make money in absence of risk. It's just something that I think it might be perceived as such. It's there's no free lunch, as they say. And so when we're presented with someone say, oh, there's nothing to do in U.S. Uh, distress today. And there is stuff, but it's it's limited relative to uh, you know past cycles where you have 10% defaults and it's just like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, now there's many different products to be able to on the private credit side, on the uh, on the bank side, on the structured credit, looking at loans, looking at opportunities, as I said, you know, throughout Asia and Europe. And that ability to be flexible in the mandate while we're still staying true to our uh, bond picking uh, fixed income orientation, uh, I think is is important and that we're you know, and also then again, the, the short side and saying, you know, we're not just going to sit there and say, sorry, we got to, you know, all this cash and we're just going to sit on our hands. I think, you know, it's incumbent upon us to uh, make money again, no matter what, because there's always vol- volatility to capture and our ability to curate credit is so important as we look to differentiate our, our offering. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Why don't we transition to the topic of risk? You, you touched on it uh, a few times uh, earlier, uh, but I, I feel like it's just a very difficult concept to get your arms around because returns, you can see, risk doesn't really show itself very often. Uh, would you sp- spend some time talking about how you think about risk? Sure. I mean, we talk about risk-adjusted returns, and many times people kind of give you the thousand-mile stare. And so, because they'll say, I don't care, I just want the returns until there's a, you know, unfortunate event that uh, occurs in a particular firm that you thought they were doing risk management, but, you know, it's sort of after the fact, there, there's a hard conversation about it. Uh, we don't, we don't plan on having those hard conversations. And so, uh, you know, I guess, again, back to my upbringings of going through the 70s and you know, 80s and, and seeing all sorts of volatility and, and how uh, difficult markets and economies can get. And certainly uh, it, it, it goes back to, all right, risk management starts uh, brick by brick. And I think there's, I remember back in 2008 and, uh, you know, we had interviewed a bunch of these uh, chief risk officers from some of the biggest investment banks at the time. And as you might imagine, many of them have kind of missed it. And uh, we were saying, all right, we want to continue. We made money in 08, uh, and yet we still wanted to, you know, bolster our, our risk department, continue to grow it, uh, and make sure what can we learn? You know, all these risk people were available, obviously, because they had uh, sort of missed it. And what struck me is many of these CROs, chief risk officers at these larger firms, were were talking in generalities, and they were talking in terms of the well, the portfolio and the markets and, and these correlates, et cetera. And I said, well, what is your view on you know XYZ credit in, in this particular industry? And they said, well, we don't look at that. I said, 
well, how do you how do you really understand the risk if if you're not understanding what the downside? And so I think, and particularly, I mean, what we do, it's it's so single name driven. However, we also look at the barbell because there is a pattern recognition that occurs within markets that that's why people hire us because we're 30 years of experience. We've seen many different markets. I've lived through many different markets. Been doing this since 87 and, and distressed and, and leveraged securities. And so that kind of experience is, is very difficult to replicate. And so living through those scenarios can give you this added uh, texture and substance that comes with this risk model that that is really empirical and, and you know you might talk about in broad sh- brushes and uh, strokes about uh, how risk models operate, but until you say okay, let's prove a mark, right? Let's let's see if this can trade. So what does liquidity really mean? And there's many different assumptions, but you know if you're in a you know offered and no bid market. You know, what is the price? How are you going to price your portfolio? And so one of the big things that we look at from a risk perspective is what's the liquidity? And in difficult times, understanding that you got a discount for size, you got a discount for uh, credit risk because there are less and less people that are willing or able to hold uh, those securities. And so then your recovery value is going to be a lot lower. Uh, and one could say that's in, it's too draconian, et cetera. And yeah, that might be fine. However, if you can't live and survive through those moments to then take advantage of those markets, you know, you got to live to to take advantage of those moments because then you could say, all right, you know, I, I believe we weathered the worst of it. The portfolio was designed and structured uh, to sustain and then take advantage on the upside of those situations because many then many of these single name values traded, you know, below liquidation value or what have you, depending on the severity of, of, of the uh, the market at the time. And so when we look at our risk management system, it's slicing and dicing it every which way. What is our rate risk? What is our spread risk? What are the different scenarios that can happen, both equity and fixed income? And then you got to think about, okay, if we're, we have always a short per- perspective and a, and a long uh, perspective and exposure on both sides, you can't win both ways, right? You can't be making money on your on your long side and then making money on your short side. You know, there's there's then you overlay what's your house view, you know, what do you think spread's going to do? What do you think the economy's going to do? What do you think rate's going to do? And that's where that, you know, top versus bottom, that barbell approach to risk management is is so critical. I think, uh, you know, we've seen it where, okay, great, you know, you pick the greatest names that things talked about earlier. However, if the overall market's down massively and you're, you're long and extended, you're going to lose money. So you're not going to be able to deliver on the absolute return promise. And so... As we think about risk management, it's it's pervasive. I, I want to push down risk management onto every one of the traders and analysts that are uh, offering, uh, you know, suggestions on on investment ideas. And really, will we pair people up with a robust trading team paired up with the analysts, and then looking at also the sourcing? So I want to source differentiated risk. I want to make sure that we have a differentiated view. Why we have an edge on being able to understand it. And then what do we think about the liquidity to be able to, you know, exit that risk or add more to that risk? Uh, and in, in a difficulty, you know, what's going to happen? Who else are you in that credit with? You know, that's just not like, look at my portfolio. 
this is sort of a relational credit risk management, if you will. Right. I think many times, you know, like, oh, I'm with, you know, a bunch of uh, leveraged hedge funds that are, you know, uh, tourists in, in the distress market. And that's who the other people that own. Well, if things get difficult in those markets and they have much tighter risk tolerances to any sort of volatility, then they're going to be first to sell. And so you're going to see the bottom drop out in terms of valuations, and they're likely to overshoot uh, dramatically on any risk model that you you might have employed. So it's important again to understand uh, who who you're you know in the credit with, who are the other people uh, in in the company that owns it with you. Yeah, you just covered a lot there. And basically, risk is multidimensional. It's top down, so thinking of kind of the big picture things. It's bottom up, looking at security by security, and then you got to also look at who else are you in those investments with, and that that whole uh, perspective gives you a, a much broader understanding of what the underlying risks are. Yeah, and and then things will happen, and you're like, oh, geez, I didn't even think about that. So it, it's that uh, back to never stop learning. Back to you know, I I'm the the humbleness where. Yeah, like I'm still trying to figure this out. The work is never done. Yeah, I mean, I've I've known you for about a decade, and what what has uh, it's it's always struck me is despite all your success and and uh, what what you've accomplished, you remain very humble. Uh, you're always worried about what are you missing? What's you know what's around the corner that you're not seeing? What can cause you know significant losses? Uh, maybe spend a few minutes talking about. Uh, the mindset that comes along with that orientation. I think again traces back to early days and and seeing some of the seismic shifts that went on and during the seventies and eighties. I also think that as you know, we look at these uh, big companies that I started in my business, and you know, companies that are top of the world. Uh, you know, then they they fell dramatically. You look at the big brokerage firms and and Lehman and Bear Stearns, and they were the top of their game. And so I, I think, like anything, it's important to remember that there's excesses, and you have to be constantly uh, vigilant, hyper vigilant to, uh, you know, what are you missing? You know, why am I so lucky? And and I think, you know, in the investment world, we look at our you know, win-loss ratio, if you will, investments that made money, investments that lost money over time. And they're really not that high over, you know, 56, you know, 60%, whatever numbers are, depending on the year. You know, obviously, bull market years, everything makes money, typical years, so and so. But if you look over time, almost 30 years, uh, it's it's not a huge number. And people would say, well, that's, that's sort of strange. Now, what is exceptional is the... Winners are bigger and the losers are smaller and ability to cut uh, sooner. It's sort of, if you think about you're wrong and you're, gonna, you're starting to lose money. Well, it's like the five stages of grief, right? You got to be like, you know, denial and anger, denial, acceptance, you know, get to acceptance as quickly as possible and say, hey, I got it wrong. And that's why that humility, humility is so uh, critical to be able to, you know, own up to a bad investment. I have friends of mine uh, who are, you know, legendary investors in the macro world. And if you talk to them a couple of times a week, you might get a couple different views. And, and you know, and, and so I think it's important 
that um, you know when we don't have portfolios that you can change your mind you know every day. However, uh, it is important to understand that you know how you, how we frame the markets is is something that uh, should be altered as new information comes on, because you know you'll you'll talk to somebody and you'll be like, wow, they really know that credit. How how I even own this situation? They know it so much better than we do. Geez, I got I got to get out of this or you know double down the efforts to uh, you know to learn it. And so you know there's really smart people in this world is really, you know, and again, sports and I, you know, I like watching sports, try to participate in sports time to time. That also, it's like anything else, you know, you, you lose your edge. If you're not continue to work hard, there's always someone smarter, always someone faster. And, and I think, um, you know, businesses, you know, that's a global market, you know, you're competing against, you know, imports, you're competing against, you know, domestic, you know, in the in corporate world. And so I, I think, you know, anything one does in life, they would be incredibly naive to think that they can operate, you know, as an island and, and not be uh, subject to uh, intense pressure and, and requiring, you know, this humility to continue to question, you know, why am I so lucky to, uh, to you know, understand this better than the rest? And, and we're not always in that case. And, and there's plenty of evidence we get every day. The market tells you. You know, you're not that smart, and, and that's okay because it means you know I I'm a competitive person, and I'm gonna you know double my efforts to uh, to find the answer. Yeah, there's a bunch of things there that you said that I think are really insightful. Uh, one is you know 55 or 60 percent hit rate in this industry is really good, and you think about most other industries, the hit rate is much higher. And and so that's pretty unique to the investment world, and it's because markets are relatively efficient; they're really smart players, it's constantly evolving and so on. So I think that is just really insightful. A lot of people, I don't think, take an honest, you know, accounting of their personal track record. You know, there's selective memory. Most people remember the winners and they forget the losers. Um, but it's, I think it's important uh, to have that honest track record. And, you know, if you think about somebody who's been in the business for 30, 40 years, they feel like they've seen it all. And it's easy to become overconfident in your ability to increase your hit rate. And, and I think it is, it's a very unique orientation to be always worried and thinking about the things that you're missing and that there's smarter people out there and so on. So all that, I think, is just fascinating. I don't know about you, but any of the people who have been doing it a lot longer than I, they're always the most insecure and, you know. Well, those are the survivors. <laughs> That's you know? true. As the old saying says, there's old traders, there's bold traders, but there's no old, bold traders, right? That's so, right. But yeah, I mean, the people that, you know, I've seen been incredibly successful for long periods of time, you know, they, they, they joke that they lost their edge, right? So they sometimes surround themselves with younger people. And, and I think, you know, that's always the important component of these organizations is to continue to evolve and continue to uh, add. And as I say, the new talent, the old talent, and, and that blend to provide, uh, you know, the judgment uh, coupled with this intensity and, and uh, you know, renewed interest. Because I think sometimes, um, you know, the, the newer perspectives are, are, are important to, to embrace. Yeah. And I, when I look at the great investors of our time who have been around a long time, uh, I think the one thing that separates them from others, obviously they're all smart and competitive and, and focus on learning and surrounding themselves with smart people. But the, I think the one ingredient that separates them is 
their their worry of catastrophic loss and what they're missing. And if you think about it, if you're if you're in this business a long time, you avoided catastrophic loss. And you know that should always be priority number one. And I think the ones that become complacent and lower that in their priority list are the ones that are kind of doomed for failure at some point. So there was a investor, Marty Whitman, MJ Whitman, and he used to talk about there's always another trolley car. I mean, there's, there's always another opportunity that that is you know coming down down the pike. And so you know Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, all these guys have have always said to your point about uh, you know managing these large losses. And uh, I always say, worry about the downside, the upside takes care of itself, um, just because the natural inflation and progression of, of uh, growth of, of businesses uh, on average. So, you know, you just have to, you know, avoid some of the, the real dogs and, uh, and the portfolio will naturally, you know, inflate uh, for you. Yeah, completely agreed. Uh, why don't we spend some time talking about King Street? Uh, you started it uh, thirty about thirty years ago, a little less than thirty years ago. Uh, would you maybe spend some time talking about why you decided to launch your own business? It was basically your second job out of school, and uh, and you you chose Fran Biondi as your partner. Uh, why did you why did why did that fit? And why were you so confident, or were you confident that you'd succeed in a you know in an industry that has generally low odds of success? When I was a kid, I mean. I had lots of odd jobs, but turned them into my own businesses. I, I, I had a long cutting business in high school where I had all these uh, customers and I employed a couple of my high school classmates. Um, I had a you know car freshman year and so went to get beer and resell it in the dorm. And so, and then remember, you know, I, I did the, you know, the purchase uh, or sort of gift with purchase program where I print up all these boxers uh, with the college logo on it. And, uh, you know, at the tailgates for football games, I would say, you know, buy a beer, get a boxer. Uh, and so I had these these boxers that, that would, you know, give out, but, you know, they would sell with beers. And so I always felt that, you know, I'd like to you know, control my destiny, as it were. Again, being product of the 70s, 80s, a lot of layoffs and, you know, unsure economies. And I said, well, if I'm going to work hard, I, I want to sort of be in better control of my destiny. And so that was sort of always the mindset, uh, entrepreneurial mindset that I had as I approached business. And so at First Boston, when I went from the banking department down to, it was a newly formed group, this distressed securities group, part of the high yield department, but we were our own self-contained business. And then within the firm, we left and started our own internal hedge fund. Uh, so in reality, being at a big firm, even within uh, the first, say, you know, seven years, um, I had started two businesses, you know, at First Boston. And so I had really a track record growing up. And then in my corporate life, even within in a big firm, if you've been in a big firm and you know how bureaucratic and stilted uh, they can be uh, to start a, a company within, you know, a large bank uh, is no easy feat. And so I said, geez, this will be easy, <laughs> you know, out of my own without all the regulatory uh, rigmarole that was required uh, to deal with a distressed uh, security hedge fund within a, a large corporate bank, particularly one that was struggling with uh, capital allocation issues. Um, so from a, let's call it operational perspective, um, I, I didn't see it 
being much of a challenge relative to how I, I went through. And then we also were, you know, Fran and I, we started in the analyst training program together. So we've known each other since the beginning of our careers. We had worked together at this internal hedge fund. We had both been independently and collectively profitable. So there was also this belief that, hey, we can do this. And uh, we felt uh, comfortable with our ability to you know, work hard and uh, have a uh, differentiated offering that was out there. And it still was, you know, the, the credit hedge fund world wasn't uh, as large as, as it is today. There's never any, uh, you know, guarantee of success. Uh, we just, you know, felt that, you know, we, we were good as any. And, and frankly, we were young. I mean, I was 29 years old. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm single. It's, you know, what's the worst can happen? I can just go get a job at a, a big bank if, uh, if this thing doesn't work out. And, you know, I was in a rental apartment. And so let's give it a go. That's pretty exciting. And, and I guess it's, it's really, uh, uh, I'm sure you enjoy looking back on your journey and where you started and kind of where you've come. It's, uh, it's got to be very gratifying. Yeah, you know that it's it's not over. Obviously, you've got a long way to go. Yeah, it's funny. I I, I, uh, I remember years ago. Uh, you know, I'm I'm an okay skier. You know, snow skiing. I you know prefer golf versus skiing. But back in the day, I I went. You know, took a rare vacation and said I'm going to hire an instructor, some young kid that's going to ski with me and ski with me for a week. And and by the end, you know, I like to ski at the time. Moguls, my body couldn't take it today. I would I would uh, fall apart after the first couple of moguls. But at the time, I was I was pointing the skis downhill, and I wanted to be like the the guys in that video. And so I'm sure I I, I look nothing like it, but I intra, inside I felt like yeah, I, I was. I was, you know, one of these guys in the ski videos and I was doing the first couple of large moguls. And for me, you know, I was doing it very well. And I then said to myself, hey, I'm doing this. And immediately, of course, I face planted, skis ripped off, you know. In fact, I, I ripped the binding from the ski. So I literally do the walk of shame, walk down the entire mountain the rest of the way, uh, and go sit at the bar and have to explain, you know, make up some really glamour story about, you know, I was doing some triple black diamond, whatever. But the reality was, I let it get to me. I sort of said, oh, yeah, yeah I'm doing this. I got this. And, and immediately uh, came crashing down. So I think that's sort of uh, emblematic of, of how I approach life is, is I never want to look down, never want to look back. I always think about the new challenge and think about this is a 30-year-old startup. And I think having that mentality is critical because, you know, there's always someone new coming out there. And and I have to approach it as, you know, there's new investors we're talking to all the time. There's new markets that uh, we're entering, if you will. And it's it's a, it's a all within the fixed income world. Um, however, you know, new markets are being evolved and created. And so, I think it's important that uh, any company that wants to uh, survive the test of time uh, is to approach it like, you know, you're a startup. And because in certain areas, they, they view the U.S. such because it's a new relationship to them. Uh, and ours is always about uh, new relationships because, um, you know, we got to make sure that we're availing ourselves to any of the opportunities that present themselves around the world. Yeah. So, so you, you, you start this uh, firm. And you have an investment philosophy and and core principles. Uh, would you talk through that a little bit? Obviously, we've touched on a lot of it, 
um, so far, but just your investment philosophy and how you think you differentiate yourself from, you know, the stiff competition in the in the space. Sure. So Kingshare has always been about looking at, as I said earlier, downside protection, looking at how do we create equity-like returns out of fixed in- income securities? How do we look at complicated situations and be able to uh, distill the risk and, and the opportunities that are presented uh, in those situations? I mentioned the short side. I think that's a, a powerful orientation differentiator because many times people wait for things to fall and then they go in and investigate. I think being early in that situation, being on the short side, then covering and going long is important to be able to risk manage and and capture uh, as much of the uh, called alpha, although I hate that expression. Uh, you know, create a, much of the the opportunity for profits as 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 you can. Uh, I also think, as I talked earlier about having the trading desk and being able to you know price illiquidity. I think you know people can price liquidity, but you got to price illiquidity. Always look at the uh, the downside. I think that's that's an important differentiator. I think it's important to, uh, as I said earlier, to manage both the macro and the micro as one looks at putting together uh, these these long short portfolios. I think um, again the global. Uh, you know, participation to be able to analyze global markets. You know, many times we will have a, you know, we we have a smaller uh, allocation to Asia in terms of our uh, our long short exposure. However, it, it factors importantly into our decision making ability to analyze credit and opportunities. And we've seen opportunities that we source in the U.S. and Europe that have been sourced by our our Asian team. So. You know, I think it's a it's a really a combination of things. Uh, it's also not one thing at a particular period of time because, you know, we're always thinking about tools in the toolbox and the extent we can, you know, grow that toolbox as, as big as possible. Uh, and you never know which tool you'll need uh, to prosecute the opportunity at a given time in a, in a particular market. But we believe having this uh, agnostic uh, view, not only long short, but as where are we going to deploy credit? You know, we've heard over the years people say, "Oh, I'm going to open up in Asia, and and you know, I'm going to give them, you know, 500 million, a billion, what have you, allocate to them." And then you know, it's just allocated. And then you know, there's not a, "Hey, are things more interesting in Europe or U.S.? Should I even be investing, you know, in Asia?" You know, we roll everything up in terms of risk to our global investment committee, which then, you know, we're incentivized to find the best risk, relative risk, regardless of where you found it uh, in the world. And and that's important that people know that they're compensated on the overall book versus on their in particular book. Because if you start the year and you say to the different, you know, regions and, you know, different products, you know, high yield, IG, uh, structured credit, you say, you know, how do you think your year is going to be? They're going to say, oh, it's going to be great. You know, you should allocate the entirety of capital to me because I'm going to make the most money. Uh, who wouldn't say that, right? They're competitive people. They believe in what they do. However, you know, that's, we would say, all right, tap the brakes, you know, as you find ideas, you know, let's let's look at them. And so one of the things we also do is we do what's called a uh, buy-sell meeting. And we do that you know, every four to six weeks as needed. And we look at every single line of risk in the portfolio and everyone participates. It happens over two days. And it's important that the other people within the firm see about what's compelling 
in those different markets, in those different uh, opportunity sets, and what kind of risk reward is is available. And if they're looking at some, they're saying, oh, mine's kind of cool. It's an 8%. I think it's a little low, but I think it's super interesting. And everyone's like, yeah, I got this 12% or, you know, and they're like, oh, wow. Okay. So that is the knowledge transfer. That is the ability to ensure that, that people are on the same page. They understand, you know, what we're striving for. Also, you know, we look at our house view. We look at what is our, what do we think the market's going to do? What do we think is going to happen? Then we continue to evolve it. We have a three-month view and a 12-month view, and we continue to say, near term, what do you think is going to happen? So if we're tactical, we can reposition the portfolio to capture that. Over the 12-month, obviously, we're not going to day trade all our positions. So, you know, what do we think is going to happen to set up to, to make money? And that way, there's this this is common, uh, you know, understanding. Now, again, I say to people in the house view, there's different room for different views within the house, and so it doesn't have to be, you know, so prescriptive that it doesn't give room for difference of opinion. Because as I said earlier, right, we we approach it as like paranoia and security. You know, you never know where that new information is going to come from, and you know, oftentimes it can come internally when you know someone on your team is like, "Hey, you know, I've, I've been reading this, and I think this is kind of interesting. This is kind of a game changer, sediment changer." Or I talked to this, you know, this person over here, and they kind of got a different, differentiated view on things. Uh, you want to encourage that information, so it's important that you don't have this group think where there's a ability to receive new information, and that's something that, frankly. You know, we all need to get better at. I, I just think it's, um, you know, endemic on, you know, so many levels that, you know, there's there's not as much open-mindedness as, uh, as need be. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what you said earlier, which is if your hit rate is 55 to 60%, if you're really good, you should recognize that you're wrong a lot, almost half the time. And and I think if you're in, in, in the position where you don't want to listen to different perspectives, you're probably overconfident that you're right more than 55 to 60%. Yeah, and I, I do think that, you know, the more talented people are the more unsure people, if that makes sense. And, and I think it's, it's because the more talented people are the people that can take in more information, can be able to understand many different scenarios, and they can understand that, you know, there are many factors that will influence, you know, valuations in markets and particular credits. You know, the 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 less talented, the very one-dimensional uh, individuals who are incapable of sort of synthesizing, because that's what we do, right? We're we're pattern recognition, and in order to see many different patterns and and what can occur, the different uh, probability weighting, we we think about it, you know, all the time. Is is I, I talk about it as proportionality. And probability with any investment, right? Because, yeah, you can one can convince oneself to to not do any investment, or convince oneself to do every investment, right? Based on the probability of proportionality, and you can say that will never happen in, in a million years, and you could buy everything, right? Or, and it, it would only impact you know this particular fraction of the market or this particular part of the credit that you're investing in. Uh, but again, you flip that around and, you know, it can make you bullish or bearish to, to extreme degrees, uh, based on probability and proportionality. So I think, you know, as we look at these situations, that's another thing that we, uh, try to keep in mind at all times. Yeah. Let's talk about building a great firm. Uh, you have 250 people. Uh, how do you find 250 great people? How do you continue to scale and how do you mentor, 
uh, inspire and instill your principles as you scale up? Well, it's some of the things that we talked about in terms of the activities, our Monday morning meeting, something else we do, the buy-sell meeting I mentioned, the ability to collaborate uh, on individual credits, the ability to come in, uh, weekly trader meetings to say, all right, what do they see in different sectors? Uh, so if we're always talking about relative value, if we're always talking about uh, how markets are interesting, differentiated, we have our team come in, you know, twice a year uh, and, you know, work, uh, you know, in, in, in New York with us on the investment side and the whole firm, you know, we've come in in December to uh, get together and, and have a lot of uh, activities. You know, one of the things we looked at and we've been one of our more popular uh, sessions that we, we put on during our King Street week is the, uh, you know, what went wrong. And it's, you know, taking some of the investment situations that, you know, did not go well. And, you know, why do we screw it up? And I think that's, important for all to say, oh, okay, it's good because King Street can be, uh, you know, self-facing, can be, uh, have that humility, can uh, actually, you know, if if we don't create an environment where people can admit they're wrong, then, you know, you're going to have these uh, disproportionate losses because you got to quickly recognize, you know, that you got to cut risk on situations where the thesis is uh, not played out. And so, you know, that's something that we uh, intensely focus on. We, uh, we celebrate longevity. We have, um, you know, over 75 people that have been with us over 10 years currently at King Street. Uh, however, we're always bringing in new blood and we want to continue to our best people who have been uh, promoted from within uh, and homegrown. Uh, I think that's, that's important. Um, and so as we, we look at, you know, the firm and, and look at uh, how we structure both the you know front and the back office. We, we talk about the integration between the two. Many of our complicated situations uh, are hand and glove, you know, process whereby the legal team works closely with the analysts and the traders and the operations team uh, to make sure that, you know, everyone is, is, is diligencing and working together to, to analyze and to structure uh, the investment that is uh, best protects uh, King Street. And so, you know, that spirit of collaboration is said earlier, if we're working towards one portfolio, uh, that's important as well, is that when opportunities come into King Street, we, we call overlapping circles, which is like, okay, part of this investment can go in the, in the hedge fund, part of this can go in, in the drawdown funds, uh, and we could share in that risk. And so uh, the sourcing and the analyzing of that risk uh, is, is shared and the upside shared uh, by the different uh, teams uh, within the firm. And that, that helps that spirit of, of collaboration. You know, there's there's always the events, whether it's charitable events that we work towards uh, spending time together or uh, just summer outings or things like that. It's I think it's, you know, we work very hard, but we, we try to enjoy ourselves as well and, and you know, generally, you know, like each other and, and uh, try, to, try to work together uh, with that one common goal. And I think it's important to understand, you know, King Street, you know, we're always, uh, you know, incredibly focused on doing the right thing, which, you know, I think it's uh, there's no cutting corners on that. So that's all part of the ethos and part of the culture uh, that uh, we built together. And it's it's really about the people and the camaraderie that uh, it results from 
common goal and and you know try and do things uh, do things the right way at all at all times. Yeah, I mean there are countless examples of small firms growing too big. They they lose quality as they scale up. the The culture isn't what it was when it was a smaller firm. Uh, they get complacent. Uh, the competition eventually passes them up. Um, so I guess to keep that from happening, your DNA has to flow through to every employee. And, and that has a lot to do with it's the messaging, it's leading by example, it's uh, the, some of the policies and procedures you've established. Um, you, you make it sound very easy, but from my experience and seeing a lot of managers, uh, they don't pull that off very well. Well, I mean, nothing's easy. I, I I think it's important too when people come on board. I always say to them, "Hey, you've worked at, you know, these great firms. Uh, you know, what what'd you learn? Okay, Goldman Sachs or Blackstone. I mean, BlackRock or, you know, these are these are massive firms. Uh, you know, what did they do there? And I think that's important to be. There's a King Street way. However, it continue to evolve if there's a better way. And, you know, we don't have some, it goes back to that, you know, you know, arrogance, right? You, you can't have this arrogance that this is the only way to do it. It's our way or the highway. Uh, and I think that uh, is, is important to keep in mind. And, and we continually focus on is, you know, we got new people coming in all the time, uh, but this is core uh, group people have been with us for quite some time. And I think, you know, there's that, something something old, something new. And, and how do you think about uh, scaling as it relates to returns? You know, is getting bigger uh, good for returns? Is it bad for returns? How do you think about that tension? I think in the markets, well, as, as I see, the markets we operate are massive, right? There's multi-trillion dollar markets. So the important thing from our perspective to monitor is, are we big enough to be relevant, which we are plenty big enough, and then to your point is, are we too big? You know, some of these funds, they're, you know, raise funds as big as our total AUM in a single go. And they'll say, oh, and we see all the opportunities. And I'll say, yeah, but you have to do all the opportunities. And I think that ability to be selective yet see the opportunity set uh, is, is an important distinction. And so I've always felt that, you know, we're not – at least King Street has never been, and I don't foresee us ever being in an in asset gathering uh, mode. And that's, you know, we want to be relevant. We want to be able to, you know, compensate the best people and be able to uh, offer the best risk-adjusted return for our clients. And that's that's an art, not a science. Obviously, if the markets go straight up and you're long, you know, you're a genius. If, if they're dislocated and you try to reduce risk, but you have too much in a particular uh, subsector, then, you know, you're, you're, you're too big. So, but I, I think I've been doing this long enough to know what sizes and, you know, we have quite large uh, markets. It also helps that we've been around for a long time. Uh, many of the relationships that I forged when I first started are now uh, very senior levels. So our counterpart relationships are are, are quite broad and deep around the world, uh, and that's you know th those are important differentiators that enable us to source interesting risk, and again to to offer you know our perspective uh, on markets and and situations because. There's always this partnership aspect, whether it's with clients or it's with uh, counterparties uh, that are looking to move risk. They want to make sure that uh, they're doing with some of the experienced hands uh, that are also incentivized the right way. I think uh, we've seen at times, you know, that 
that businesses they get too big, their incentives are are not aligned because um, you know and they're not able also to be solution providers to uh, to the clients as as we we can. Yeah, in in our industry, in the investment management industry, if you're too small, you can't really attract the best people and maintain keep them. If you're too big, your your universe of available investment options shrinks, and there's a kind of a you know, not too hot, not too cold, right in the middle. And that's subjective. But but generally speaking, it seems like uh, that's how you think about it as well. Yeah, that's fair. Why don't we talk about the the market and, and your outlook? Um, you know, if, if you kind of start from a very high level and you zoom out, you know, you had 40 years of falling inflation, falling interest rates. And, um, and it's very possible we hit a major inflection point and we're in a higher for longer environments. And that's still yet to be seen, but it seems that way, at least to this point. So how do you think about, from a very big picture, where are we headed? And then, uh, and then we'll zoom in a little bit on maybe some specific opportunities that you're seeing. Sure. So obviously, as you pointed out, we've had 82, you know, 40 years forward, there's been, you know, massive uh, one-way, you know, jagged, downward trend, but uh, generally downward trend towards rates and, and then, you know, zero rates and then, you know, pandemic, et cetera. And, you know, we all know, and, and part of the stuff is people underestimated, you know, how quickly rates could go up. And then I think they're overestimated how quickly they can go down. And you look at the performance in the last couple of months, it's been stunning, right? Yet IG you know, down one and a half in October, you know, really not much in stocks, et cetera. And then just, you know, November, December, been massive. And, and you know, some would say pull forward of, of returns from 94 into 2023. Certainly you saw that in some of the high yield situations as they retraced uh, to begin 2024. And we're seeing dispersion increase where you know the the have and have nots continues to increase. There are there are certainly there's still a lot of uh, liquidity out there. Financial conditions index continues to improve, particularly when you see asset prices uh, reflate as as quickly as they have. There was this oh, Fed said you know three and and the market priced in six rate cuts, and now the market's like well maybe it's not that much right because. From our perspective, looking at this six rate cuts, well, geez, it's it's can't how are you going to have a no landing, soft landing, right, or stick to landing, whatever they want to call it. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be a hard landing, but I, I could see a soft landing and then gradually going into a, a harder landing as as the economy goes on, principally because of the debt loads that are out there. And I do think if, if well, observing some of the predictions on GDP growth globally, uh, they're not talking about ro- robust, you know, uh, real, real uh, or nominal growth here. And so the challenge is going to be also from a liquidity perspective, if you think about the funding needs, because a lot of this has been central bank uh, propagated because not only on monetary, but fiscal policy, a lot of the largesse that has incurred. And fine, they've done some QT, but they continue to print on the fiscal side. So you had a 6% you know, fiscal deficit in the United States, and we've you know, blown up the, uh, the debt loads. And going forward, there's going to be a competition for capital in our mind. As you look at 
both on the government side competing against the funding that is going to be required on, on the corporate side as this maturity wall is hit, you know, in real estate and, and corporate bonds. Now, it's come off the wides recently in the last couple months, as you saw this big rally in credit that we talked about and equities. And so people are refinancing and they're racing to refinance now. So there's a massive note. Now, there's still two and a half trillion or whatever the number is of equity needs to be spent by private equity. And so they're getting a lot of pressure and they're like, use it or lose it. So they have to price. Uh, and so there's going to be more debt issued from that. And so I just look at the different pockets of funding that will be required, which I think is going to be difficult for this price to perfection market that we have in terms of you know spread and rates. Uh, I, I just find it difficult. And again, it, you know, if you're going to have all these rate decreases and then and have the market uh, still be okay, uh, I just think you're going to ignite inflation again. So I would say on the markets overall, you know, I think it's going to be sort of a middling year. I, I, I think it's going to be a bifurcated year. I think the, the stronger names and high yield, which are higher quality and investment grade will be fine. And and then the question is going to be the weaker names, because you look at, say, private credit, for example, uh, a lot of those names are struggling with uh, interest coverage. And so that is going to be problematic. And so to sustain the cash flow as we have higher for longer uh, in these rates and, you know, the growth picture uh, on top line revenues, I think is going to be challenged. And, you know, it's it's been surprising if you think about all the geopolitical uh, difficulties in the world today that oil would be where it is. Uh, I think that's that's surprising. That's been a pretty good tailwind uh, for markets. Um, I think unemployment, again, priced to perfection. You see some of the temporary staffing businesses, they are, and they're sort of the early warning signal, they are are, are slowing. And so I think, and hours worked are going up and, and people look at the fact that they laid off a bunch of people during the pandemic, that it was hard to bring them back because it was all this uh, fiscal uh, support that was out there, unemployment insurance, and uh, people would have to pay their student loans or their apartment bills or, you know, or mortgage, all this sort of uh, stuff that was, um, you know, pushed out or, or forgiven outright. And uh, I think that's going to be difficult to have happen again if we have another downturn. So I definitely think uh, there will be uh, further dislocation. And, and again, this dispersion continue to increase where, you know, on the wider, more difficult, highly levered names are, are, are going to suffer disproportionately. Yeah, I think of it as you kind of had the tailwind for decades. And then there was the shockwave. And, and you, first you had COVID, and then you had the response to COVID, and then you had the, the, you know, the higher uh, the interest rate hikes in response to the high, highest inflation in 40 years. And you had this massive shock to the system. And there's going to be shockwaves that, that are going to reverberate for, for years. And I think many people are just, they just look at the recent past and they extrapolate that into the future. But unless you zoom out, and you look at that big picture uh, shock, uh, I think you may be missing some major dislocations that will happen. Does it, is that how you think about it? Yes. And many investors today, they've lived under the auspices of the Fed covers, you know, all the issues. Everyone gets the trophy, right? We're, we're that kind of generation. And so I think that, I mean, we haven't, many people haven't lived through a recession ever. 
you could say, oh, different points, GFC, et cetera, but it really wasn't a, you know, you didn't live in the 70s, right? You didn't live, you know, and, and so uh, I, 90s and, you know, I mean, it, it, parts of the 80s. I mean, so I think there was, you know, this complacency, there has been this complacency that has come into the market where the Fed is able to, I mean, like their job before was, monetary policy and then it became fiscal and monetary policy and and so and now we we just everyone has too much debt and everyone can't pay it so you got two choices when you have too much debt right you can inflate your way out of it or default your way out of it well we tried the inflate thing and all that did was give us more debt and now that being said the better companies have a still a pretty good coverage ratio in terms of their you know debt you know to interest coverage ratio but again, it goes back to this, you know, bifurcated uh, situation. And I always say the worst go first. So, um, you know, I, I think it's 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 incumbent upon investors to, you know, look at what scenarios in prior cycles. Uh, you know, people look at the last 20, 30 years. And to your point about, okay, you've been a bull market for bonds for 40 years. So go back 100 years. You know, what sort of, you know, can happen uh, in these markets? Uh, and they can say, well, it's different now, right? It's you know, how many times you heard that? And that's like sort of the death knell uh, for for opportunities. If someone said it's different now, um, I, you know, I, I I get it. You know, it's, it's different because there's more liquidity, which is double-edged sword, right? I mean, people get used to, I remember them talking about high-frequency traders and say, oh, no, they're good for the markets. And I said, high-frequency traders are pro- providing liquidity when it suits them. It's not like the the old school, you know, specialists on the floor exchange, if you remember those, and they sat there and they made markets and, you know, and they ended up, you know, getting carried out, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's important that, you know, one should put this liquidity and, and uh, the markets in perspective of uh, what can happen and where the incentives are. You know, the incentives are for them to, you know, long-term capital, right? It's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's great. And they went and leveraged their balance sheet with everyone. Look at Olympia in New York, right? I mean, they pledged their balance sheet and their real estate to everyone, right? So, no, I think we're better today in terms of the structure, but there's still, I think, a fair amount of leverage that's predicated on, uh, you know, functioning, you know, liquid markets uh, that at times can get dislocated. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, you know, one thing that I think is interesting, if you look at the last 30, 40 years, when you're in a falling interest rate environment, so, I mean, for until 2020. Two, we're either in a falling interest rate environment or near zero interest rate environment. And, and it's easy to refinance when rates are falling. Yet, if you're in a period where rates are either rising or they just stay higher for longer, and maybe the economy slows more like the 70s, that's not so easy to refinance. So that that's a very different credit backdrop. Yeah, I mean, I'm you look at today as well, and you see the collateral and the banks continue to get squeezed and so as you look at the private markets, they're getting larger and larger as, as you know, the QCIP market. Uh, and so, you know, we've always had a very active and deep uh, capital markets and always seems to be solutions. But, you know, if you look at, say, you know, the private markets, they're, they're not regulated by the feds as, you know, in the central banks as, as the, uh, the public markets are. And so, you know, there's just risks of excess that, that occur uh, as a consequence. Um, and, you know, refinancing, 
yeah, I mean, people take it for granted. And also, let's be clear, if, if there's an existing uh, amount of, of debt that's out there and new debt becomes issued and say another credit, uh, maybe that's, you know, something that's interesting and the people who own that say, I'm going to sell mine and buy that because that's a bit more interesting, maybe a bit more asset coverage or covenant protection or, you know, interest rate, what have you. Uh, so you can, you can have those orphaned uh, existing and then it becomes difficult to, uh, to refinance, um, you know, and, and, Again, these these are fluent markets. They're not static markets. So uh, you hit these maturity walls, um, and might have been interesting when it was issued. But as I said, as as the uh, issuance and the profile credit profile can can evolve, uh, you know, one you know can can hold some uh, security that is challenged in terms of refinancing because of uh, its lack of uh, investor protection. Yeah, let, let, let's talk about this historic tightening that we had, you know, rates from zero to five plus in a very short period of time. And when when that happened, there was broad consensus. Almost everybody was thinking, OK, a massive recession is next. You had an inverted yield curve. Yet here we are. The economy seems to be holding up just fine. Is your sense that it's just the lag response because of all the maybe the stimulus beforehand? And and how are you thinking about this? And is kind of is is the reckoning down the road? I definitely think it's a lag response. Uh, the government, uh, the Fed, is still paying on balances, which was a you know GFC response, and so banks are still receiving uh, money on deposit. The Fed, um, there was obviously the savings that was uh, out there. There's a tremendous amount of private market response that was able to bail out a number of these companies. Um, and then, you know, as, and I, I do think, you know, technology innovation and continue to uh, control costs, uh, you know, it's, it's continues to be uh, amazing uh, how markets have been able to evolve. If you, again, look at Europe versus the U S and, and our response. And, you know, they, they always say that, Europe, 75% funded by banks, 25% markets in the U.S., 25% funded by banks, 75% markets. So there's a lot more flexibility in the United States in terms of access to, to financing and ability to refinance, to your point, than, say, Europe. Also, you have you know demographics. There's also this regulatory you know, morass that uh, the Eurozone suffers under and then Brexit in the UK. Uh, and, they, and a lot of the banks have these floating rate mortgages. So people, the, the transmission system happens through refinancing. If you think about, you know, these these higher rates, that's that's generally how it occurs or, you know, uh, refinancing, um, resetting. And so short duration or floating rate, it, it, it transmits more quickly. And so, if you think of a homeowner in the United States, what they'll tell you is their best hands-down asset they own is their 30-year 3% mortgage because it's like, you know, I, I nailed that one. Now, what's happening is it's technicals are such where you're not getting many people sell, right? Because they're like, now I got to go refinance. I can't afford, you know. So to unlock that value, that's the high prices. And so, Prices have stayed high, so rental markets stayed high, uh, supplies stayed low, and so you know it's it's kept those asset values higher. Now, 
you know, compared to the Eurozone, which, you know, more bank financing, more variable rate of mortgages, uh, you know, there's been a more pronounced slowdown. Uh, now, refinancing is starting to occur because people are saying, oh, this tightening in the U.S. from 23 to 24 plus the 25 maturity wall, uh, you know, but these are some of the companies that we had felt that, geez, they're not going to get financing. They're going to hit the wall hard. They're able to refinance at the moment. Not all will. So it's going to be, again, the the better quality credits are, are going to be disproportionately enabled to have access to cap markets versus some of the weaker credits. We like to say the worst go first. Uh, and so that's, that's an important distinction to make. Uh, so, you know, I think it's just, you know, we'll take time in these markets and you know it's it's due to a confluence of of different events that uh, has enabled this economy to continue to be robust, uh, despite you know what would many times historically. I mean, if you had see, said to somebody, "There's going to be a war in the Middle East. There's going to be a war in Russia, Ukraine. Where do you think oil is going to be?" I don't, I don't think anyone would have, you know, picked uh, you know, oh, it's going to be sixty to eighty. Uh, you know, in terms of, of it'll be got to be over 100, 120, 200, whatever. Uh, so I, I think that there has been this compartmentalization that has gone on in, in many markets uh, and, you know, a function of, you know, basically, you know, it's the, the banks are in better shape, uh, private market solutions, uh, some more liquidity associated um more dispersion has increased, but it's in the main, the bigger quality companies have uh, have done okay. And obviously we're late in the economic cycle. We haven't had a recession for some time. You had this historic you know, rise in interest rates. How do you think about uh, maybe the lag effects of that affecting credit? And are there any specific uh, sections or segments within credit that you're finding dislocations currently? Well, I mentioned commercial real estate. So real estate, you know, that's certainly one of the areas we we do what's called uh, LME, liability management exercises, where we take whether it's, uh, you know, loans or or private credit uh, situations where we're able to go into uh, as a solutions provider to a company, uh, maybe sponsored, private equity sponsored, uh, and provide a liquidity solution uh, very specialized to these companies. Uh, but there's, you know, a number of these opportunities out there. We have a CLO business, collateralized loan op- obligation business, where uh, in structured credit, we, we see a lot of companies and have relationships. We've been investing for quite some time, both in the U.S. and Europe, and we're able to uh, identify these uh, mispriced opportunities and come in and uh, help uh, bridge the liquidity gap that is is occurring um, due to a um, you know in-depth analysis of these companies. You've been very generous with your time, Brian. I, I want to end with one insight that uh, you feel is unique that you've learned uh, throughout your career that many may not have heard um, elsewhere. Is there is there one uni- unique insight you'd like to share to close? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, there's, you know, I think over the years, we've always talked about, you know, different ways to, uh, you know, approach markets. Um, I've always felt that, um, you know, uh, being able to be uh, flexible in the mandate and being able to, uh, you know, think about the first, second, third derivative uh, of what influences a company is is critical. 
And so I, I see many times there's a simplistic approach. However, as I you know continue to learn, uh, I've learned that it's not only sort of the research edge, it's the trading edge, it's uh, looking at, you know, I think as I was saying earlier in terms of how we approach risk, but it's also operational risk, right? Do we structure this, uh, you know, covenant and we, do we see, you know, based on pattern recognition, some of the pitfalls that can occur with the improper documentation. So I guess, you know, the insight is, is really a culmination of insights and putting it together and understanding that, uh, in organizations are important. I think, um, as we've observed that it's not just one part and that's why uh, having this ability to bring it all together uh, is is so critical as as we look at what investment is is suitable uh, to be in our portfolio it has to be uh, you know a number of different traps uh, both macro and micro both you know trading research and and operational uh, is this something that is that is suitable and and what can go wrong and so having and then rolling that forward continuously so I don't know that it's a particular differentiated but it's I think differentiated in the sense of it's a uh, amalgamation and, and a culmination of of this uh, you know experience that continues to uh, evolve. That's great. Brian, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you and our listeners did as well. Thank you. Oh, it was great being with you, Alex. Thank you. And always love to uh, chat with you and uh, always love to talk about the opportunities in the market and King Street's ability to uh, take advantage of them. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit our website at insightfulinvestor.org to access past shows and learn more about our podcast. If you have questions, feel free to email us at info at insightfulinvestor.org. And if you enjoyed the discussion, please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations, nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.